0: Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory Stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. Do you remember when I told you, I don't know, probably a month ago now, that Donald Robertson would come back to talk about part 3 of Ego in Stoicism? Remember when I said that? Well, that was supposed to happen in today's episode, but Donald has a new book out and as often happens when Donald and I get on the phone together or the video call as it happened, we have a tendency to talk about anything and everything other than the thing we showed up to talk about. And the, and this time was no exception. So, we wound up talking a a bit about his new book, Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor, and also about some other stuff that I think you'll just enjoy hearing, but isn't on the topic of ego. Of course, Donald has agreed to come back sometime later in February to talk about ego, and we'll actually do that this time. But today is a bit of a Donald Robertson grab bag, and I know everybody likes the guy, so I don't think there's anything wrong with a random Donald Robertson grab bag. So that's what you're gonna hear today. Before you hear that, however, I have to do a little bit of housekeeping and say, Thank you to a bunch of new patrons who have joined since Monday. Thank you to DC, just DC. Maybe that's the whole of Washington, DC. Who knows? Larry G. Heibel, or Heibel. And I'm sorry if I've said that wrong, Larry. To Colleen Struss. To Andrew Campbell. No relation. <laughs> Jason Monteroso, TJ Gengler or Gengler. Sorry, TJ. I bet people say it wrong all the time, and I'm just one of those people now. Sorry, man. Chris Welch and Sean Wagner, who I assume is from the great country of Canada, as there is a maple leaf in his avatar. Heartfelt thanks to all eight of you for joining. Your $5 a month means a lot and helps me to continue to do this work and to have this work be the work I do to make a living, which is a pretty cool way to make a living. That is to say, by helping people to understand Stoicism a bit better in a way that helps them to make their own lives a bit better. So thank you, truly. If you're listening and you're not already a patron, you can become one for just $5 a month by going to StoicismPod.com forward slash members. You'll get a nice little shout out like these eight folks just did. You'll get access to an ad-free version of the podcast, and you'll get access to things that I do behind the scenes. For example, hosting private interviews within our Discord community which you'll also get access to. And that's it. We'll hear from two sponsors now, and I'll be back with Donald Robertson, author of the new book, Marcus Aurelius, The Stoic Emperor. This episode is brought to you in part by Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with over 3 million members. They are, without a doubt, the easiest way to play DFS. It's just you versus the numbers. You pick more than or less than on 2-6 to player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. With the big game right around the corner, prize picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game-changing moment into 100 times your money because with as little as 4 correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Offer expires post-Super Bowl. With quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of player and stat types, it's no wonder PrizePix is the number one daily fantasy sports app. I've got friends that use prize Picks, and they absolutely swear by it, so if daily fantasy sports is your thing, you've got to give prize Picks a try. Go to prizepickscom forward slash practical and use the code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepickscom forward slash practical with code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks, and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Procapton. Welcome back. I am joined by fan favorite Donald Robertson. Hi, Donald, how are you?
1: I'm fantastic. I'm the richest man in the world, Tana. The sage, you're the sage. I'm the richest, wealthiest man in the world because I, I have more than I need, which is how Antisthenes yeah, and the Stoics define wealth. So I'm doing pretty well. And it's not, there's not a blizzard outside, so that's good. That is good, considering you live in the far north. You, you also have a brand new baby. I've got a brand spanking new baby. And you're going to have a brand one new soon. book. I've got a brand new book. And two, like oh, one and a half new books. Uh, I've got another book coming out later. But then I've got this book. Are we doing video? I don't even know, but there's a book. Well,
0: no, we're not doing we, video, but it's, doing a, it's Marcus Aurelius, the
1: Stoic Hang Emperor. Hang on a minute. And
0: it's, and it's a bio on the man himself. I'm flicking the page. You can hear yes, the book. Yeah. <laughs> great. My, like, little, my high pass filter will love you for that.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of auditory aid. It's called Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor. The clue's in the name. It's about it's about Seneca. <laughs> it's about Seneca, actually. No, it's about Marcus Aurelius and how he's a stoic emperor. I'm pretty literal when it comes to titles. Right. It's forty pages. <laughs> yes, like. And well do you know, here's an aside, right? When I first started writing about some of these things like I read all, some you know how some people say they don't read reviews and stuff? I, I meticulously read reviews because I really believe in feedback. And all through my career, I've gathered thousands and thousands of bits of feedback from like all the training that I used to deliver in conferences and stuff. And one of the things I noticed was there'd be people that would say, sometimes people say things that kind of amuse me. And one of them is there's a bunch of people that will say, but we don't know anything about Marcus Aurelius, you know? And actually the opposite is the truth. You know, of course there's gaps in our knowledge when it comes to ancient history and the sources are unreliable. All that kind of stuff kind of goes without saying, but but I guess we, we have to emphasize it. But we know more about Marcus Aurelius than we do about... Um, virtually any other ancient philosopher. One day I need to actually go and check this. I keep saying it on podcasts, but it may well be that we know more about him than any other ancient philosopher. I mean, Epictetus, we don't even know what he looked like. You know, the, there's lots of famous philosophers that we know very little about their lives. Marcus Aurelius happens to have been what I technically refer to as a big deal Back in the day. So, of course, we have several histories of his reign. We have a private cache of letters that belong to him. We have inscriptions and uh, numismatic or evidence or evidence from coins uh, relating to his. Rain, like we've got a, a, a kind of wealth of evidence about his life and, and actions. And, and we even see what he looked like at different points in his life. We've got young Marcus. We've got old Marcus. You know, We know quite a lot about uh, his uh, so the people he associated with. Or like, we know a bit about the people he so We know quite a lot about Hadrian and Antoninus Pius. So that kind of even provides us with some context for his life. So, yeah. People, we I think I'll, there are still a lot of people, though maybe that are surprised how much we know about Marcus Aurelius. Do you
0: think that in the book there's anything that you reveal that is really going to shock a lot of people? That, that is just not, I mean, yeah. you you, we, you, and I were talking a bit before I hit record and we were talking about the process of making sure everything in this book was correct. You published it through Yale University Press. They're going to definitely yeah. put you through the ringer to make sure yeah. that you're not saying anything wrong. And, of course, you do your yeah. own great research. Do you think anything comes up in this book that people are just going to jaw drop when they read?
1: Well, it's easy for me to do the research because I'm in the fortunate position of knowing a lot of people over the... I'm old. That helps. (laughs) I always think think that helps. It does help to be old. It helps to be old. In some ways. Yeah, so I know a bunch of people. And uh, I have a very good friend called Laoya Lloyd who lives in Athens, and she's a classicist. She teaches Greek and Latin... Um, and so Lalia helps me verify a lot of the information and I've got other people that um, you know I get information from and also Yale have a very rigorous process, what would surprise people I mean there's like there's levels right so there's people that probably know a bit about Marcus Aurelius and maybe read some stuff about him and then they're not going to be surprised by 90% of it but then there's people that know zero about Marcus Aurelius so there's trivial things like Marcus Aurelius was led a dance troupe like, no, he didn't. He did. Did he really? Yeah, he was super into dancing. He was kind of obsessed with it. I think uh, for a long time. And uh, he was apparently he was really good at playing a kind of rugby like ball game. Hmm. You know, the stuff like that. He read a um, he led a, a dance troupe called the College of the Sali. Um, are the leaping priests. I mean, if you can imagine... You know, in the... All right, but slight detour. In the ancient world, um, most young men were supposed to be ready for military service. Sure. And one of the ways they prepared for that is everything's more integrated in their culture, right? So you go, as a young man, you learn to wrestle. And do pancati and then boxing, and you do these other athletic sports that are kind of very traditional, but they also tie into military service in mm. the ancient world. But so th- do they they have these martial dances in ancient Greece, ancient Rome. And the best thing I can think to compare them to is a little bit like kata or forms in, mm. in martial arts today in Japanese martial arts. So you would do these highly stylized leaps, and thrusts with spears, and you use a shield, and, and to flutes and drums. And and this was, like, uh, a religious thing. It was in honour of the god Mars, the god of war, and it was mostly young men that do it, and it's meant to keep them fit and also to train them. I mean, it's probably, like, a really stylized version of some of the moves that you might make if you were fighting with a shield and a, a spear, but it's, yeah, he did that. So it's not, when I say dancing, it wasn't like weird. It wasn't kind of, you know, the tango. It wasn't like, you know, interpretative modern dance or something like, you know, he was doing something that was probably a bit more like uh, Akata in karate um, to drums and flutes, if you can imagine that, while chanting uh, a weird religious hymn about Mars.
0: I, of course, have read your graphic novel, your excellent graphic novel. And so I know that your understanding of Marcus Aurelius as a character from history goes all the way back to his childhood. Do you feel like this book goes even deeper than you were able to go in that graphic novel? The graphic novel yeah. was quite in depth. I was su- I was surprised it speaks to
1: the credit of what a good yeah. book it was. I went I went to Conuntum for a week like Did you really? Yeah. I interviewed the archaeological director at Kernantum and the manager of the archaeological park, and we took photographs of everything, the landscape. So, um, and I've spent a lot of time in Athens. Like, I spend a lot of time in museums. So, maybe people maybe wouldn't. Re- I mean, we, you could just write a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius. Like, we some of the archaeological, like some of the buildings, the furniture, the sculptures, the clothing, the military uniforms and formations, the landscapes. We researched. I one day. I'll show I the when you're doing a, a project like that, if you're doing it in that way, you'd send the artist ref what you call reference images, right? So I can show panels in that book and I can show the photographs that I took in museums that I sent to Zay the graphic designer. And I said, we want this panel with this guy over the shoulder shot, like, you know, another one from a high angle. And then in the background, there's something that kind of looks like this building that I've photographed here in Athens. So yeah, like we did a lot of, and a lot of historical research. So the other thing that this, here's here's a bit of trivia for you, right? I went through Marcus's letters from start to finish and picked out um, greetings oaths, and other kind of incidental pieces of, of speech, right? So because letters and poetry, actually, are a really good source for informal speech, believe it or not, right? So if you're writing a graphic novel or you're making a movie, you might say, so when Marcus meets Frontal, how does he actually greet him? Like, what does he say? Hi, Frontal. <laughs> like what does he say Like, so he says he tends to say at least in the letters and stuff he'll greet him as best of masters and things like that you think that's kind of weird it's sort of cool like, Fronto refers to Marcus's mother. He greets her in a letter as, as uh, mother of Caesar. So they'll tend to swear. Marcus, I thought, if I remember rightly, tends to swear by Hercules. And then, you know, there's other little like quirks of language and stuff like that. So we went, scrutinised letters and poems to pick out what we thought would be authentic idioms to use in informal speech in the book and stuff like that. Like So we did all that i think it made me a much better biographer because then i was able to well there's different types of biography right there's a more there's a more academic style of biography where you look like at for a university professor, would be maybe more likely to write where you say, okay, this is all the evidence we've got, and some of this evidence isn't reliable, and there's like three different versions of what happened here, like, and this is how we know whether this... So there's kind of a more analysis of the value of different pieces of evidence. And then there's a type of biography that's more written in a narrative style that says, okay, like there's three different versions of this, we're just going to pick one so that we can tell it like a story. Play, and that's more engaging. It's a little bit more like writing a movie screenplay or something like that. You know, they're just different approaches to doing the same thing. This is a more narrative biography. So I didn't, there's not a lot of analysis in it. There's some in the in the end notes and stuff, but basically, you know, I'll, I'll try to imagine what Marcus's life was actually like based on the evidence that we have. And, uh, you know, other things that I'll tell you, I'll tell you something that emerges. This is and this is controversial, right? There's an elephant in the room, Tanner. It's the big H, otherwise known as in, in the book one of the meditations, Marcus sits down and lists all the people that he admires most. There's like about 17 people. They're all family members or tutors, right? Um but Romans were hypersensitive to not mentioning people. Right? They call it damnatio memoriae. Like, it's a big deal. Like, if you're left off the Christmas card list, as it were. Sure. It's, right? it's like getting snubbed at the
0: Oscars or something.
1: Yeah. The Romans are much more sensitive to this. Mm. So you can ask who doesn't Marcus mention in book one of the meditations? Well, the most obvious thing that stands out with a sore thumb is. If you say, who does he say? They they would also be sensitive to how much you say about someone. So easily, Antoninus Pius, he says way more about than anyone else. He Mm -hmm. says very little about Lucius Verus. So he absolutely damns him with faint praise. He says nothing about
0: Hadrian. He says nada about
1: about Hadrian. And yet he mentions Hadrian four or five times in the rest of the book, but only just to say, gee, you know, think all those people that were really rich and powerful, and now they're just like dust, Mm -hmm. like, you know, (laughs) dust in the wind. For example. Hadrian. like for instance hit that guy Hadrian right yeah. Marcus knew Hadrian I that guy I remember the, like the internet is full of amateur historians that and, and they're worse than philosophers for absolutely being convinced that like they know better <laughs> like and that you're absolutely wrong about him. so there's this guy that we' got really angry with me he's like Marcus it really has never knew Hadrian you know and I'm like Marcus lived in Hadrian's villa it was for he about, was about like the a last... stepfather to him wasn't he he was his adoptive uh, legally his adoptive grandfather. Hadrian absolutely engineered Marcus's uh, education as a young man. He chose to appoint him to various offices as he was growing up to prepare him to be a future emperor. It was him that uh, arranged that Antoninus would would make him uh, his successor. And and he came and lived in his villa for, like, I think it was about four or five months towards the, the end of Hadrian's life. Um so they they they're, and their families were very closely connected like there's a i mean it's if you visualize it like marcus had two grandfathers he had a great grandfather to be specific on his mother's side and uh, a grandfather on his father's side that were both if i remember rightly thrice consuls so like really 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 senior the most senior members of the senate now hadrian was never there like hadrian was off gallivanting around the world most of the time. So these guys would have been the most powerful politicians in Rome, right? And and they're Hadrian, they're there, like, running the Senate in Hadrian's absence. They're Marcus's family members. Like, of course, if you visualise this, Marcus's family are really connected, like, to Hadrian's role. Like, and they're also kind of vying with Hadrian for power, in a sense. So he's really in the thick of it and all the political intrigue that's going on. One of the things I would say that might shock people, um, the other person that Marcus doesn't mention, that may, we maybe wouldn't, ma- we wouldn't expect him perhaps to mention, but he's not mentioned anywhere in the histories that refer to Marcus, in his uh, private letters and meditations, is one of the most famous individuals of the era. There are actually several like, people that doesn't matter. One of them is Antinous, like Hadrian's lover, um, who was round about, he was a little about what, a few years older than Marcus, if I remember rightly. But so Antinous dies under mysterious circumstances. He, he turns up drowned at the bottom of the Nile in Hadrian's company. Um, it's a huge deal. Hadrian starts this enormous religious cult based around the worship of his dead lover. And uh, actually, this is where it, maybe I should be, I'm cautious how to phrase this. Because we're probably talking referring to Pederasty, right? So traditionally it's said that Antinous is Hadrian's lover, but you could also see him as somebody who's being sexually exploited by Hadrian, hmm. right? He was something like twelve years old when Hadrian first encountered him. Like, and I think he was around about 19 when he died. Um then when Hadrian comes back from his travels, suddenly Marcus becomes his favourite and he's brought to live in his villa, surrounded by by dozens of busts of this dead ex uh, what are we suggesting How, here marcus it, well oh man i don't want I, you know i'm not going to suggest anything, but i i think again if you try and visualize the situation uh, it's it's pretty weird right it is How, yeah. it, wouldn't it not be disturbing for like um a young boy to be i think when marcus went to stay in hadrian's villa actually he was 15 but hadrian had been back for a few years by that point. So, my, you're a 15-year-old kid, and Hadrian's villa is this, like, huge, com- massive complex filled with slaves. Um, it was pretty... De- I mean, it, you know, I think sometimes we can exaggerate how corrupt and decadent Roman emperors were, but sometimes we're pretty on... We're, we're right, you know. Hadrian's built this... There in- were
0: only five good ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, Hadrian built this enormous. Hadrian's usually considered to be one of the good ones. Like, um... And he was having all these political purges where he was threatening to execute even members of Marcus's family. And then he's like, hey, I want you to come and live in my house. I mean, Mm. there's no way that that wouldn't have freaked him out. And we're told Marcus was really reluctant to go and live there. Well, no kidding, right? Of course, like, you know, for many, multiple reasons. I mean, by some accounts, Hadrian was known for writing uh, erotic poetry, about young men, right? And apparently, it was it was not romantic. It was it was pretty sexually explicit and crude, mm. right? No one tells you that. Like, so this <laughs> no guy, tells you that, right. this guy is saying, "I want your fifteen-year-old son to come and live in my house."
0: So now, wait a minute. I mean, I think <laughs> there, now there's another elephant in the room. We haven't even talked about the fact that Seneca's not mentioned. We now have a potential elephant. There's multiple is.
1: elephants. There's
0: this elephant is that you're not suggesting it, but History does seem to have space for the idea that Marcus Aurelius, as a young man, could have been sexually assaulted by Adrian. It could that, have happened.
1: I think it would go too far to say that because we don't know that. that I hope happened. so.
0: Um,
1: for anybody, I would hope so. But but it certainly wouldn't have been unusual in the ancient world. Uh, there are reasons. There are there are reasons that we might hesitate or question. Uh, that it would be, I think, relatively unusual for it to happen to someone in Marcus's status. Arguably, that's it, but we just don't know. And but uh, what I would say, what I, what I am saying that we can be confident about is, it would have been a concern. Mm. Like um, if we try and visualise the situation he's in, it would be ridiculously naive to pretend that this wasn't disturbing. Um, And there's other things that are really disturbing about it. Hadrian had, like I say, he was having political purges against Marcus's family and executing people. He had spies everywhere, right? So the other thing no one ever tells you is that Hadrian was notorious for for paying informers. So the Romans had this weird system whereby if you grasped someone up, and they got executed for treason, you got, I think it was something like a third of their property, which is crazy, right? (laughs) So obviously, (laughs) it's in your interests to make up stories about rich people, right? And normally, they wouldn't be believed, but if the emperor happens not to like somebody, there are people queuing up to accuse them of things uh, and to be paid for doing it because there's a ridiculous system that everyone hated of the, the delatores or informed paid informants. And Hadrian used them a lot. You're also allowed to torture slaves to get them to throw their owners under the bus. And Hadrian opened people's mail and was known for that. We had spies planted everywhere. Like So Marcus comes to live in his house. Everyone around him, there's like hundreds, thousands of servants. They're all spies, like observing everything he does. So it really, there's bits in the meditations where Marcus says things like, never do anything that requires walls or curtains, which is a probably a cynic saying or a stoic saying but it definitely takes on a new connotation Mm. when you visualize that he was dragged into this environment where political purges were happening and he was surrounded by paid informers and spies watching and everything and listening to everything that he he did so it's no surprise that he became hyper self-conscious and very very reflective like very self-possessed in his behavior
0: What I find really interesting about you, Donald, in general, is that you present in, in your work as, I think a lot of people think of you as an author about Stoicism, a Stoic author. But this is now your third book on Marcus Aurelius, and I've gotta, <laughs> I would identify you as a Stoic, someone interested in Stoicism, someone who writes on Stoicism, but above those things, a Marcus Aurelius expert of sorts. What is it about Marcus Aurelius that has, I mean, certainly there are many interesting things about him, but there are many interesting things about many interesting people throughout history. Why him?
1: Well, I've written three books about Marcus, like a self-help book, a graphic novel, and a biography. And I've also edited an edition of The Meditations, wrote a biographical essay at the beginning of it, and I've written a chapter for uh, an academic anthology on Marcus's relationship to psychotherapy as well. Like So, I mean, over the past few years, I've, I've done a lot of writing about Marcus Aurelius. Why? Well, like we were talking earlier and I mentioned, we just know so much about him. And so the other ingredient there you need is when I was a young guy and I went to university, I, my first degree in philosophy. And I, for some reason, I just found it easier to study philosophers if I I, I read lots of biographies. So I read Bertrand Russell's biography, I read Wittgenstein's biography, you know, and by Jean-Paul Sartre's autobiography. By, by reading about these philosophers, I found it easier because academic philosophy can become very abstract. And if I knew more about the author, just at a psychological level, I would kind of visualize the guy. I could he, kind of hear his voice when I'm reading. I mean, Wittgenstein writes really, the Tractatus is really abstract. It's a bit formal logic. But by kind of knowing a bit about Wittgenstein, looking at photographs of him, reading his biography, suddenly it seemed more personal and more three-dimensional. I put a human face on it. And so it made it easier for me to remember stuff and to kind of, you know, um, relate to, to some of the abstract ideas that they were coming out with. So I, I guess I took that and then applied it to Stoicism, and I thought, "Gee, who do we, you know, how much do we know about Zeno? Well, we know some stuff about Zeno, but honestly, the the information we have on Zeno is is very anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And it, it, once you go back to classical Athens." You know, there's a big difference between Imperial Rome and Classical Athens in terms of you know our sources are sketchier, less reliable the further back we go, uh, generally speaking. And so we we don't we we you know we've got a bunch of anecdotes that we're not really sure about. Like sometimes Marcus Aurelius really we've got. A a reasonable pile of evidence. So it's much easier to construct an image of him.
0: You know, you and I have worked together at Plato's Academy Center for a little bit now, and I've got to have a number of conversations with you, and you strike me as the kind of person who probably doesn't enjoy talking about things that they don't know much about. And I'm wondering if, in other words, what I'm saying, Donald, is you don't strike me as someone who tries to bullshit any bullshitters or non-bullshitters. And I'm wondering if some of that is, some of your interest in Marcus Aurelius might be that it requires you to do no bullshitting because so much about him is known. Is that part of it too?
1: Maybe that's part of it. I um, I like the fact, you're right. I mean, I actually, in some ways, I, you know, I'm, funnily enough, I'm happy to to talk about stuff that i don't but then i'll usually say i don't know anything about this like you know, i'm just guessing you know and like you know maybe after a few beers or something you know like we don't we don't know that much about and we can speculate but yeah i prefer to talk about things there are multiple reasons for that but one of them is this is contra- controversial right in my field on, on
0: this show unheard of
1: in the field of psychotherapy um so psychotherapy, in a sense, is a, is an evidence based practice. In its infancy, it's made a lot of progress in recent decades. But when I began training in psychotherapy, people would say, "Hey, there's like different types of psychotherapy. There's Gestalt therapy, and there's like NLP type stuff, and there's like Freud and Jung, and you know, there's all these like different pr- approaches to psychotherapy." And you get to choose which one, and you can combine them and stuff like that. I love and that I thought, they all sounds stupid, too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a stupid idea, right? So in some ways, it is true that different styles of therapy suit different personalities. But I quickly felt there was something just chaotic about this. And, you know, I thought, do we not have a... We, we need to know which of them works, right? Some of them definitely work better than others. And if some of them are more suited to certain individuals, then we should be able to select those individuals and match them. We shouldn't... I mean, but what normally happens is that therapists just do... Actually, I'll tell you a even. Let's go even deeper into controversy, and I'll tell you a little anecdote. So I I trained as a psychoanalytic therapist or counsellor, psychoanalytic counsellor, I should say, right? Psychodynamic counsellor. I have a master's degree in psychoanalytic theory. I studied Lacan, Klein. I was like a bit of an expert almost at one point on Freud, although I've probably forgotten most of that. And I was in group supervision for psychodynamic practice. And the guy teaching us, I was at the same time studying CBT and things. And he talked about a client that he had who had panic attacks. And he'd been treating them for two years, seeing them like three times a week, which is pretty normal for that type of therapy. But also at the same time, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, three times a week, uh, that's like 150 sessions over two years. Like 300 sessions times hundred bucks a session, like that's like what thirty grand or something. Yeah, what are like, we trying to
0: do here? Help or keep our income
1: coming? Yeah. Out? So at the time, I was like, "This is expensive, right? It's getting expensive for this client." Now, funnily enough, panic disorder is one of the problems where we we it, it went from zero to hero. Like the the psychoanalytic therapist used to think it was virtually untreatable, and then um, a couple of Researchers in the mid-1980s suddenly figured out the protocol that worked for it, and now it's one of the most treatable conditions. So it was like a huge leap forward um, in terms of the clinical effectiveness of psychotherapy. So I said to him, you know that there's a substantial body of research that shows that CBT has a very high success rate in treating panic disorder within like I've uh, been about six weeks eight weeks or so right um, and he was like, yeah so you no know, he's like he can't plead ignorance right He can't say no, I didn't I didn't I don't read research so he he had to say yeah like of, of course I know that and so I said to him do you, knowing that do you feel that you have an ethical obligation to inform your client that that research exists and he thought it to his credit he thought about it for a minute and then he said no. And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Because I'm a Jungian." Like, "And that's what I do. And I don't do CBT." Oh, that's
0: interesting. So there's a kind of loyalty to the particular yeah. vertical within psychoanalytic yeah. theory that you would have to back yeah. the back the party line of.
1: And I thought that's BS. Cuz yeah. if I was cuz I thought and the way that I used to work these things through in my mind because I trained, I was a clinical supervisor and I trained therapists and we'd have all these kind of ethical debates about psychotherapy. So in my mind, immediately my go-to is I'm going to imagine that the client's in the room listening to this conversation, right? As a benchmark. And I thought if the client is over here and she's listening to me talking to this guy, I wonder if I was the client and I heard this conversation, what would I think? And I think without a shadow of doubt, that the therapists have a legal obligation, have a, sorry, an ethical obligation, and actually maybe even to some extent a legal obligation to obtain informed consent from clients. And arguably, it's a bit of a legal gray area, that requires telling them if there's an evidence-based treatment available. So it might be that the client's like, I don't care, I just love Jungian therapy so much, I'm perfectly happy to do it for years, even though I'm not seeing any improvement and I don't mind spending 30 grand on it. That's fine, right? Maybe that's the, maybe that's their thing. But what's wrong is if the therapist knows this and doesn't tell the client. You know, that's a lie of omission in my view, right? It's a significant piece of information, crucial piece of information that a therapist knows and is withholding from the client. So yeah, absolutely. As a young guy, I felt... I became frustrated with the psychotherapy field, Um, and I, I, I wanted to know more about what research actually said, and I wanted my clinical practice to be evidence based because I felt I was surrounded by people who were selling me their approach to psychotherapy. Um, There'll be people would be adamant that regression and catharsis. Like, you know, going back and reliving your childhood experiences and and crying them out and all this venting is like the only way to cure problems. Um, or they'd be adamant that tapping your face in a certain way could cure phobias immediately, or whatever. And you know, most of the time, I gr- first of all, I gradually realised that the people that were saying that a few uh, because I'm old, a few years later would be saying something else. They'd have moved on to some other fad or whatever that they got into. Um, And I realized, you know, from watching them closely and listening to them, that they were basing these claims on nothing, like that they just wanted it to be true. They were invested in it. So psychotherapy is a field where in the past there was a lot of BS, to be honest, right? And a lot of contradictory claims that people were very convincing about putting forward. And people in authority would, you know, really... I mean, there are guys that have got knighthoods in the UK for writing books about psychoanalytic theory that, in retrospect, look like total pseudoscientific mumbo jumbo, right? And possibly never helped any other clients, really. Or, you know, you probably didn't help them any more than if they'd gone and done any other type of random therapy. Um, some of it's crazy. It's easy to make fun of psychoanalysis in particular. The last psychoanalytic paper I ever read as part of my training, was by a guy. I, th- I believe I, I don't want to unjustly malign a psychoanalyst, but you know, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, risk, I'll risk it. I'm pretty sure it was by Donald Meltzer. Was the name of the guy that wrote it? I could be wrong. I think I think I think it was him. So, like, all right, it's some other psychoanalytic author. And the subject of the paper was golf, and the, their thesis was that golf was. Uh sublimated anal eroticism um because it involves repeatedly putting your fingers into a, a dirty hole. That was what this paper was about, right that we read in class right Now it's easy to make fun of these things, Tanner you're laughing, but people people have whole careers on writing stuff like that. And they get knighthoods and they get, they get pensions and retire on them and live in big houses, you know, because they sat in an office with a mahogany desk and wrote these things and then clients would come in and see them and they'd say, you know, I think what your problem is, you know, is that you play too much golf or something. I don't know. I can't even imagine like, something
0: like that being written on a mahogany desk in a nice office yeah. and that's what he's writing on the desk. Oh, wow.
1: These guys always look like they're experts, right? right they're like you know they, they sound really wise uh i found and then i'd go away and i'd kind of slap myself and i'd think but hang on a minute listen to what he's saying you know and and then i'd say well what's the evidence that he's be- there's no evidence at all like he's literally just made this up right i reckon is how it goes right well in cbt we like we look at very high, incredibly complex statistical, state-of-the-art research. It's peer-reviewed and it's constantly subject to revision. I mean, there's a a world of difference between a science and a pseudoscience in that regard. I mean, these pseudosciences, there's just guys going, I reckon, Freud... For a hundred years, people believed in castration anxiety and the Oedipus complex, and and some people still do. And you might think, I think many people again think that Freud must have done some kind of research to come up with his belief that all forms of anxiety are repressed castration anxiety. He must have done some kind of research, right, to figure that out. No, he literally just made it up. He had a bunch of nightmares after his father died and he interpreted his own dreams and uh, sat in an armchair with his pipe and slippers or cigar and thought, I think I want to have sex with my mum and and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of frightened my father's going to castrate me. Like, I think, I think that's what's going on. And that and I'm must pr- be what's going on with everyone. <laughs> that must be what's going on with everyone else too. And he told his patients this and they said, no. And he said, ah, you're in denial. Like, you just don't realise it. No, right? I'm and not. that you see, you see. Yeah, proves it. Yeah, that is exactly what it was like. And that went on for like, you know, a 100. It's a, I'm so glad that that's over. Like cuz to me that was like the dark ages of psychotherapy. Um and there are, I know that's going to offend people because there are still people that are into uh psychoanalytic theory. Like many of them are literary theorists and film theorists and people in philosophy departments and stuff, but a lot of this it's difficult not to make fun of it because it, it does seem kind of ludicrous. From a, a set. I mean, there are good bits of psychoanalytic theory, mm-hmm. I suppose. And one of them we were we were going to talk about. I'm going to do you, I'm going to do you a favor here, Tana. yeah, by yeah, bringing <laughs> bringing bringing the conversation back to what I know you wanted to talk about, which is the e- concept of the ego, right? So Freud said that we have. An ego, an ed, and a superego, right? Right, first of all, he never said that, by the way. But we'll pretend that he did, f- so that my joke works, right? But
0: yeah, let's buy in. We're suspension okay. of disbelief 100%. So,
1: f- so Freud goes into a bar, and he goes up to the bar, and he says to the barman, could I, the barman's like, how can I help you? And Freud said, could I have a, a pint of Guinness for my, for my ego? And the barman's like, sure, OK, anything else? And he says, yeah, I'll have a whiskey chaser for my superego. Now the barman is actually a postgraduate student in psychology. He's just doing a bit of bar work to pay the rent and all that, right? So he's uh, he's like, "Oh, this is great. I've got a great opportunity, right? I've read Freud, right? So he says, "What about your id?" And Freud says, "Nothing for him, thanks because he's driving." <laughs> uh, that's that's my only psychoanalytic joke. It's not my only psychoanalytic joke, but it's like it's the best one. Now, what it leads to, I said Freud never said any of this stuff, right? Because Freud was German, right? <laughs> right. Uh, he was Austrian. He's Austrian, he wrote in German. And he ego, ed, and superego are Latin or Latinate terms that were introduced by James Strachey, Freud's translator, right? Uh Freud um just says it I over eye, I, I think. And so there was, a, there was a movement at one point to retranslate all of Freud's works, mm. removing these Latin terms. Because some people, many psychoanalysts who think a lot, overthink in a way about Freud's writing, said the use of these Latin terms, let's come back to ego, uh, reifies what Freud was saying. So when you say ego, Freud just said the eye does this, the eye does that they said it seems more naturalistic and more intuitive. But if you say the ego, it seems more formal and it makes it seem more like you're talking about a kind of imaginary entity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't quite have that connotation in the original German that Freud wrote, they claim. So there's an argument people used to say that Freud in German comes across as more, in the parlance of psychotherapy, humanistic um, than Strachey's translation. But we're stuck with, Uh, this terminology because it's so ingrained in our culture now.
0: It's interesting. They, something else. Something happens similar between erite and virtue, right? Yeah. A lot of people will say, "Oh, well, virtue has to do with men only because ver comes—that means male, masculine—and so only men can chase virtue." And it's—it sounds like a very similar thing in that. That's not what the Greeks were saying because virtue is a Greek word, is a Latin word.
1: Well, there is a general point here about translation, right? <laughs> with translation. That, yeah. Let's let's get really broad. Like, But it's worth mentioning. I mean, anyone that's interested in stoicism, and I guess it relates to writing biographies and writing about stoicism and stuff. And that
0: is where we have to leave Donald Robertson, at least for now. I had to get back to cooking dinner. My wife was on her way home from work. She is nearly eight months pregnant. And so I wanted to make sure dinner was done. And I cut Donald off and said, hey, we never talked about ego. Not really. So can you come back and we can talk about ego later in February? And he very graciously agreed that he could and would. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. The first half about Marcus Aurelius, the bit about Hadrian and the possible sexual exploitation aspect of that story blew my mind to think that that might have happened to Marcus as a young man, even though Donald makes it clear that that would have been extremely uncommon to have happened to someone of Marcus's status. He also agrees that it would have certainly been a concern to the people who were involved. And that's a terrible thing to think about. But in any event, I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I will look forward to inviting Donald Robertson back to have an actual discussion about ego more formally. But until then, and until next time, thank you again for listening and take care.